Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. And you're listening to the Grok Science Show. That's right, it's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and the effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's program, Dr. Henry G. will join us to discuss a very short history of life on Earth. So stay tuned for all of this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And our world-famous question of the week. Coming right up. Here. On the Grok's Science Show. Science Show. What is the history of life on Earth? Where have come from? Where are we going? And what's our future? Joining us today to discuss this issue is Dr. Henry G. Dr. G is a British paleontologist, evolutionary biologist, and the senior editor of the scientific journal Nature. He completed his PhD at the University of Cambridge and was published a number of books, including In Search of Deep Time, A Field Guide to Dinosaurs, and Jacob's Ladder. He has now penned the new book, A Very Short History of Life on Earth. 4.6 billion years in 12 pithy chapters. And he joins us today to discuss this very fascinating topic for a general audience. And Dr. G, thank you so much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Well, you're very welcome, Charles. It's great to be here. Well, certainly a pleasure, certainly a, a very intriguing and, as you put it, pithy book about the history of life on Earth. I'm curious, why did you decide to put this book together? <laughs> There's a long answer and a short answer. The short answer is, for years I've been having an idea at the back of my mind to do a little book on the history of life on Earth called Henry's History of Life on Earth or something short and sweet like that. But it was at the back of the closet, you know, behind the bicycle and the barbecue you haven't got out because it rained all last summer and spare Wellington boots. But the, the slightly longer answer is at the Office of Nature, I would often have a chat with my colleague David Adam who's a writer of several books, and we talk about what books we'd had in progress. And he said to me, why didn't I write a book about all the amazing fossil forms, the history of the dinosaurs and the amazing things that I've had the pleasure of nursing to publication over 30-something years at Nature? So that was essentially the germ that got me writing this book. And what was your thought process going through in terms of trying to cover all the tree of Earth in these 12 pithy chapters? Well, I think I wanted to make it like a bedtime story for grown-ups. It even starts once upon a time. And what I wanted to do when I wrote it was keep clear of the usual didacticism of science books, of science nonfiction, and to tell it like a story. And all the actual whys and wherefores and ifs and buts and maybes could be relegated to notes at the end, which is what I did. So I wanted to keep it like a narrative and tell it like a story with events and characters and arcs of narrative and cliffhangers, because the history of life is just the greatest story you can tell. And so I thought, tell the story. It seems it sounds terribly simple, but you've usually got to go through a few first drafts before you get to that simplicity of exposition. As someone once said, before you meet your handsome prince, you've got to kiss a lot of toads. I think that is the nature of human thought about who we are, is telling the story of our past, our future, and, and our present. 
Well, I think that's exactly it, Charles. You've hit the nail on the head. One thing that distinguishes human beings from the other animals is our ability to tell stories, initially to try and explain how we got here. And that can take many forms. It can take secular forms. It can take religious forms. But I just wanted to tell kind of a, a secular story that for people to read, if they might read a fiction, a work of fiction, a novel, and be entertained really, as well as get some idea of the vast scale of life on Earth in a digestible package. The book starts at the very beginning, and I like the nod to George R. R. Martin there with the title, A Song of, in this case, Fire and Ice. Well, yes, it was a riff on the song of Ice and Fire, but that, that was quite apposite because when the world began, it was very hot. It was a ball of magma, and by the end of that chapter, it's just the first chapter, the world was covered in, the whole world was covered in, in ice miles and miles thick. This just goes to show that our planet has had a very varied and dramatic history that life has had to cope with. If life had a motto, Charles, it would be whatever doesn't kill you makes you stronger. So whatever environmental disasters would come over the horizon, life would cope with it and evolve in more and interesting ways. That was really the way that life is shaped is by these environmental forces and changes uh, geological timescales. Yes, I think whenever some environmental catastrophe looms, life evolves, usually by becoming slightly more complicated, trying to uh, evolve bigger forms to achieve economies of scale, to achieve more with less. So one of the great environmental disasters that happened 2.5 billion years ago was the injection of a lot of oxygen into the atmosphere. Now, oxygen is something that we breathe and we require to, to live every minute. But for the first life forms, they evolved in the absence of oxygen. Oxygen was for them a deadly poison. So that precipitated one of many mass extinctions in the Earth's history, but also prompted life to become more complex. It prompted life to become more complex and evolve more resilience into itself. I'm talking like life as if it has agency. Well, of course it doesn't. These things are just blind processes of chance and necessity. But if you look at the whole of life over geological time, it does seem as if there is some kind of agency, there is some kind of direction. There isn't, of course. That's just the conceit of the storyteller. It is something that humans are prone to, is ascribing agency in regions where there really is no agency. Mm -hmm. uh, that was the only problem I had when writing the book, when talking with the editor, was to try not to put too much agency in there. It's When you're telling a story, of course, and you become invested in all the organisms, all the living things, all the characters, and you're rooting for them from the sidelines as you write, it's very hard not to give them characters. From that song of fire and ice into the history of life, particular animals, that really covers the bulk of the book here. Yes, the book homes in gradually on the origin of our own species, naturally, because people like to read about themselves. I mean, I could have done it in any number of ways. I could have done it from the point of view of a giraffe or a geranium or a guinea pig. But as the history of life on Earth, is the story of every organism, but of course, as we are reading it, and as, as far as I know, all my readers are human beings, I wanted to make it the human story, coming right up to the time where humans become 
sentient. Humans become aware of themselves in their own drama. It finishes, the main part of the book finishes with a shaman welcoming a young initiate of the tribe into a cave to put their handprint on a wall of the cave to say, I am, to acknowledge themselves as a, an agent. So agency comes in right at the very end. The middle of the book focuses on a topic which is of great interest of yours and a lot of people, and that is of the era of the dinosaurs. Yeah, I wanted to do the dinosaurs. Well, the dinosaurs had to have a chapter of their own. I mean, of course, everyone loves dinosaurs, but I wanted to do it in a slightly different way. Rather than talk about this dinosaur and that dinosaur, I wanted to talk about dinosaurs as the precursors of birds. Even the biggest, gigantic Brachiosaurus and Brontosaurus, their best seen as gigantic four-footed flightless birds because of the beauty and elegance of their structure, of the way that they breathed, of the way their bones are put together. Everything leads to the evolution of birds from dinosaurs. So I started that chapter saying from the beginning, dinosaurs were always built to fly. So rather, I took a sort of slightly left field approach so rather than just telling a story in the chapter about dinosaurs, I was talking about how it is that birds are the direct descendants of dinosaurs. In many ways, tying that to our own present, which is these are the descendants of the dinosaurs and that we can relate to. Well, indeed. There's a story I have at home when we keep chickens in our backyard and we got some chickens from a, an intensive chicken farm that we'd rescued and they didn't have many feathers when, when we got them and they weren't very socialized. I remember watching from the backyard, my, I remember watching, looking outside of the backyard, my wife chasing these things round and round the, round and round the yard and she came in and said, don't go out, it's like Jurassic Park out there. So anyone who's kept chickens will easily see that birds and dinosaurs are related. They're like little velociraptors now, especially when they haven't got too many feathers on. Well, it's a, it's a slightly different thing when you think of Tyrannosaurus rex as a five-ton chicken. The book moves very quickly from dinosaurs to mammals. It covers a lot of ground in those chapters there. Yeah, except I skip over the whole of human history. I go from human beings seeing the light, as it were, from the mouths of their caves, right until human beings have been extinct. And I, even though the book says in its title 4.6 billion years, I actually add another billion years for free, for no money at the end. So I talk about what, what might happen after human beings have become extinct, because we humans won't be here forever. We might be extinct in a few thousand years or so, but life on Earth will continue for another billion years or so until the sun is too hot for life to persist. So I speculate wildly about what life might be like right until the very end. What's the lesson that you think we have from the past about potential futures for life on Earth? Um, I think what happens is life, when it's given an environmental challenge, becomes more complex. And the next stage in evolution is already being presaged by human societies and also ant societies. Um, the great sociobiologist E.O. Wilson wrote a book called The Social Conquest of Earth, where basically the next stage are superorganisms, where living things cooperate to such an extent that they're no longer viable as individual organisms. And I think eventually 
living organisms will become gigantic mashups of plants, animals, fungi, bacteria, until perhaps at the very, very last gasp of life on Earth, there might be just one giant organism ramifying like a fungus through the Earth's crust, defiant against the dying of the light. So in many ways, the superorganism Gaia. Well, yeah, just uh, trying to keep alive until the very last moment. Well, obviously, there's a lot of talk these days with all the advances in technology, AI, that uh, life will see this merging of machine and biology. It's very hard to say. That's not something I've really thought about much. I think that, um, well, there's quite a lot of development of AI at the moment with, you know, chat GPT and you know, language systems that can really... Um, mimic human language in, in many ways. I'm not quite sure what the future of that holds. I, I don't think that there will be science fictional things like uploading our brains to computers or things like that. Well, I stand agog at the incredibly fast pace that AI is going at the moment. I mean, who can say where it will go within a week, let alone a year or a million years? Having covered the 4.6 billion years in the history of life on Earth, what was the most surprising thing to you in terms of looking back at the, the entire natural history of the planet? And what were, uh, do you think, the biggest lessons you drew out of it? Well, one thing that didn't really occur to me when I started the book and should have done is the scale, is the immense length of time that the book covers there are no illustrations in the book except there are six time charts. The first time chart looks at time on the biggest scale from the birth of the universe to the end of life on Earth. And then each succeeding time chart looks at a segment of that and a segment of that. So the very final time chart looks at human history at its greatest possible definition from 125,000 years ago when people invented bows and arrows until the present day. But if you wanted to have that at the same scale, if you wanted to fit that in time chart one, it would be microscopic. So that was the only way I could do it. It's just the scale of time involved just makes my mind real. That I should have thought... I. I'm a paleontologist. I should be used to this sort of thing. But that's the thing that um, really hit me while I was writing the book. So we're not going to last forever. Who knows how long human beings will last. But my feeling is that uh, as a species, we're not destined to, to last more than a few thousand years. I'm working up a book about that now, trying to fill in the, the little mi deliberate missing chapter of human history that I didn't put in the book. We are running slightly out of time. People picking up the book, people reading it, what would you like them really to take home about the very short history of life on Earth? I'd like to give people a message of hope that the world's changing very fast, but there are things we can do to make our lives and everyone else's lives better by having courage and being kind and being good to the environment. To, um, In other words, we're not going to be long on this planet, but I think we should leave it in as good a state as we found it. And I think there's something noble in doing that, even though our record in the great scheme of time on Earth will be really very little or nothing at all. So there is a kind of nobility and an aesthetic in doing that. So I think the thing to do is to have hope. As I started the book saying once upon a time, I end the book by saying, do not despair. The earth abides and life is living yet. 
We were speaking with Dr. Henry G. His new book, A Very Short History of Life on Earth, 4.6 Billion Years in 12 Pithy Chapters. Dr. G, thank you so much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. You're very, very welcome. Thank you for having me. And that's all for this week's edition of the Grok Science Show. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here, you can email us at science at groks.net. For Grok Science, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.grox.net. Have a great afternoon and keep on grokking.